Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today God Saad. He is professor of marketing at Concordia University. He's a leading figure in the application of evolutionary psychology to consumer behavior, author of books including The Evolutionary Basis of Consumption and The Consuming Instinct. He's a blogger for Psychology Today as well. He has a new book out. It's the topic of our podcast entitled The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. Welcome, Professor Saad. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, how about a couple of terminological questions? You referred to, quote, idea pathogens. What makes an idea pathogenic? So here I used a neuroparasitological framework. And so let me explain what that is. As an evolutionary psychologist, uh, I often look at the field of comparative psychology, comparative in the sense that when you're trying to make some statement about human cognition, you will often look at the behavior of our animal cousins. So for example, if I'm studying toy preferences, you know, why do little boys and little girls choose the particular toys that they do? Then you might study what vervet monkeys and rhesus monkeys and chimpanzees do when you give them different toys to choose. And so I was already someone who had the professional instinct to look at other animals in making statements about humans. And as I was looking at a way to come up with a explanatory framework for understanding some of the dreadful ideas that have been promulgated on university campuses and have since, you know, seeped their way into every nook and cranny of society, I thought, well, the parasitological model is an excellent one. So let me give you an example of what I mean by that. So in nature, there are endless manifestations of, you know, a host that is parasitized by a by an actual parasite. So for example, a tapeworm will go into your intestine, right into your gut. But neuroparasites are a particular class of parasites that end up in the host's brain, rewiring its circuitry to serve its own reproductive interests. So the classic example might be Toxoplasma gondii, which is a parasite that can infect the minds of uh, mice so that they lose their innate fears of cats and actually become sexually attracted to a cat's urine, which is not a good thing for a mouse to be attracted to. And so I had my epiphany right there. I thought, okay, so these ideas are pathogenic, but they're also parasitic in that they cause us to sort of slowly walk instead of towards the cat's urine, it slowly makes us walk into the abyss of infinite lunacy. 
So that's the idea behind idea pathogens and the parasitic mind. And of course, the next thing might be, if you'd like, we can discuss specific manifestations of what constitutes an idea pathogen. Yeah, I mean, you call yourself a, quote, parasitologist of the human mind. Go ahead, give us an example. So I, I go through a whole bunch of these uh, parasitic ideas in the book, but probably yep. the one that I can start off with, and I call it, in a sense, the granddaddy of all idea pathogens, is postmodernism. So postmodernism is a philosophical framework and I put philosophical in quotes, which basically argues that there are no objective truths. We are completely shackled by subjectivity. We are completely shackled by personal biases. And so you could never have an absolute objective universal truth because it is always going to have an asterisk next to it that we are, you know, it's all subjective reality. Now, as you might imagine, that's a terribly anti-scientific position because in science, we do wake up every day thinking that there are universal truths to be discovered. Now, of course, a scientific truth is provisional in the sense that what we might have thought was a scientific truth 300 years ago might no longer be the case today, right? There's an autocorrective process in science, but we do wake up every day thinking that there are truths to be discovered. Well, postmodernism is a form of intellectual terrorism because it rejects that possibility. So that would be a, if you'd like, a grand epistemological idea pathogen. More localized idea pathogens would be something like militant feminism. Now, equity feminism is a great idea because it basically says, hey, there's no reason why men and women should not be equal under the law. There is no reason why they should be institutionalized, you know, misogyny or sexism in a society. And I think most of us would agree with that. The problem then becomes when an originally good idea metamorphosizes into an idea pathogen like militant feminism, which basically argues that in the pursuit of the former goal, we have to now argue that men and women are indistinguishable. There is no such thing as evolutionary-based sex differences between men and women. It's all due to social construction. By the way, social constructivism is another one of these idea pathogens. So what all of these idea pathogens uh, share in common, Mark, is they, I argue, they, they each are committed to freeing us from the you know pesky shackles of reality. Uh, they start off with a kernel of truth and with some laudable goal, but in the pursuit of that goal, they end up murdering truth in tr seeking to obtain that goal. And I always argue that I can walk and chew gum at the same time. I can defend people's right to live free of bigotry and so on without ever murdering a single millimeter of truth. And for the parasitologist, the main method of demonstrating the pathogenic character of, say, militant feminism is through empirical evidence? I mean, is that the strongest argument against it? Right. So in chapter seven, I explain how we can seek truth. And I argue that there is an epistemological tool, an incredibly powerful tool that we can use. And I call it nomological networks of cumulative evidence. And I know it's a mouthful. So if you just give me a few minutes, hopefully I can clarify it for your listeners. So if you think back of Charles Darwin more than 150 years ago, when he uh, published On the Origin of Species in 1859, how did he do it? Well, he assiduously collected data and evidence over several decades, stemming from an extraordinarily broad range of disciplines, from geology, from paleontology, from comparative morphology, from biodiversity, from ecology, from animal husbandry. So all of these different lines of evidence were coming from completely distinct sources, but that when you put them all together, it seemed 
that his theory of evolution was absolutely veridical. And so I argue for a similar uh, process for many of the, you know, substantive debates that we typically might engage in in the public sphere. So if I want to, for example, prove to you that uh, there are sex-specific differences between boys and girls in terms of the, the, the toy preferences that they hold, and there are biological reasons for that. How would I go about doing that? Well, I think I already hinted at one earlier. I could bring you data from other animals that suggest that they have the same sex-specific toy preferences. I could go to developmental psychology and show you that children who are too young to be socialized already exhibit those sex-specific preferences. I could bring you data from pediatrics. So there's a, there's a disorder called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which if a little girl suffers from, her behavior becomes masculinized. So I could take little girls who suffer from this disorder and I could show you that their toy preferences become similar to those of boys. So bit by bit, I can build this tsunami of evidence coming from completely different fields, different disciplines, different time periods, different cultures, so that when I put it all together, I drown you in evidence. So I don't need to get hysterical. I don't need to scream. I don't need to get emotive. I simply assiduously collect the data so that hopefully I could convince you of the veracity of my position. Now, you're known as a warrior against political correctness. You spend some time in the book with some autobiographical material. What is it about your experience that has made you such a foe of that kind of conformity? Right, great question. So and I always say, and I discussed this in chapter one of The Parasitic Mind, I have faced two great wars in my life. The first great war was growing up in Lebanon. So we are Lebanese Jews who had to flee Lebanon under imminent threat of death because it was no longer feasible to be Jewish in Lebanon at the start of the civil war. So I was there the first year of the civil war. Subsequently, my parents returned to Lebanon to because they had some business interests there and they were kidnapped by Fatah. So the things that I saw and the things that my family went through in Lebanon could make for several movies. And this is when I first uh, realized how much I despised identity politics because, which is another idea pathogen. Uh, identity politics, is, you know, the, the end consequences of identity politics is exactly what happened in the Lebanese civil war because Lebanon is completely constructed on the ethos of identity politics. The constitution in Lebanon says the president has to be of this religion, the prime minister has to be of that religion and so on. So in Lebanon, the, the identity politic marker is your religious affiliation. You, as a matter of fact, you carry internal ID cards where your religion is prominently uh, displayed. So Lebanese Jews were actually written, if I translate it into English, as Israelites, right? So we weren't even Lebanese Jews. We were somehow Israelites, which which increased the animus towards us because of the usual dynamics between Israel and the Arab states in the Middle East. And so this is when I first realized that I despised identity politics. So you could imagine how terrible it is for me to now see that one of the two political parties in the United States is basically building their whole, you know, driving ethos on the ideology of identity politics. Uh, I mean, it's a grotesque thing to do because a classical liberal approach is one where you hail individual dignity. I am God sad before I am anything else. I am me. Judge me on the merits and flaws of my personhood, not whether I am Lebanese Jew or, or olive skinned or tall or short or transgender or not. So that's really the first war that I faced. The second war was the one that I faced 
uh, as a professor, first as a graduate student and then as a professor, the war on reason, on science, on logic, on common sense. And so many of these idea pathogens originally were promulgated within the humanities and within some of the social sciences, but then eventually they find their way into every nook and cranny of society. So for example, the prime minister of Canada, uh, I often, well, I joke, but I'm being serious in a sense. He is a walking idea pathogen. He basically represents every single idea pathogen that I cover in my book. This is for those of you who don't know, prime minister Justin Trudeau. And so there are real consequences to bad ideas. It is incorrect to say, Oh, but you know, Dr. Saad, aren't you just railing against some quacky ideas that are only relevant within some esoteric hallway in the humanities department? No, all of these ideas eventually become normalized in public discourse. And so this is really how my background shaped my antipathy towards a lot of this stupidity. Part of your autobiographical section goes into your early academic studies where you found a lack of biological knowledge in the interpretations of human behavior. What was going on there? Well, that's one of the early idea pathogens that I identify, and I call this biophobia, just fear of biology. So a lot of social scientists are perfectly happy to concede that when it comes to the behavior of your dog, or of the zebra, or of the mosquito, or of every other species on Earth other than human beings, biology matters. But don't you dare say that biology explains our behavior, Dr. Saad. What kind of maniac are you? So this is what's been called, this is not my term, but this has been called the human reticence effect, which is basically the idea that people are reticent to use biological explanations to explain human behavior. And in several of my other works, I explain where this reticence comes from because people have all sorts of ideological reasons why they can't agree to the idea that humans are shaped by evolutionary forces. So for example, they wrongly think that if evolution has anything to do with our behavior, then this is a form of biological determinism, meaning that, well, what are you saying? That I'm just the executor of my genetic imperatives and I don't have free will? That's not at all what evolutionary psychologists say, right? Everything of who we are is an interaction between our genes and our environment. As a matter of fact, specific genes get turned on or off as a function of environmental inputs. So to argue that something is due to biology doesn't mean that we are these lacking free will executor, robotic executors of our genes. If I am religious, I hate evolutionary psychology or evolutionary biology in general, because where does God fit in? If I'm a postmodernist, I hate evolutionary psychology because we do argue that there are universal truths, whereas postmodernists say there aren't. If I'm a radical feminist, I hate evolutionary psychology because don't you dare say that there are innate sex differences between the two sexes. What are you, some kind of Nazi? So for all sorts of idiotic and imbecilic reasons, many, many social scientists and other academics have been really lagging in accepting what I consider to be a terribly banal truth, which is that of course biology affects our behavior. Let me, let me pick up with a question here. Uh, in terms of the, the, the coercions going on, you have some strong cases that you recount. One of them is the case of Alessandro Strumia. And I remember when that broke, what, what happened there? So Alessandro Strumia is a, a physicist who I think he was at the University of Pisa. I, I can't remember which Italian university he's from, but he was also working at CERN, 
the sort of the International Collaborative Center, Physics Center. And he had been invited to speak at a conference on gender and physics, because now we need to incorporate identity politics into every imaginable uh, scientific pursuit. And so during his lecture, he offered some bibliometric data. So for those of you who don't know, bibliometrics is the field that studies specific metrics of science, who cites whom, uh, you know, are men more cited than women? At what age are you likely to get your most impactful scientific study cited? So it's basically a way whereby you could parametrize science, right? And th that field is called bibliometrics. And so he wanted to look at the narrative that women are being held back in physics because of sexism and the patriarchy. And so he shared very objective, scientific, bibliometric data to counter that narrative, right? And being someone who's not really steeped in the culture wars, he was completely taken aback by the tsunami of animus that he faced, including, for example, I talk about in the book, the obnoxiously named Particles for Justice. So this was kind of a compendium of physicists who came out with an open letter denouncing him for denying people's humanity. And I mean, it, it was so insanely hysteric and so removed from what he had done. And I happen to be someone who, for better or worse, can't walk away and be a passive bystander when someone is being railroaded and attacked. And so I was, I believe, I think the first and maybe only one who offered my platform to Professor Strumia to come on so that we can discuss his reality. And his reality is one that is one example of now endless number of such examples where someone says something that they consider to be completely objective and banal, but that completely goes against the politically correct orthodoxy and then their careers are ruined. And so in a sense, that's exactly what the parasitic mind is about, which is, you know, we can't allow these kinds of tactics to completely stifle our ability to pursue things freely, say things freely. I come from a society where we weren't able to speak freely, and it breaks my heart to see that we now are doing the same thing in the West under the guise of progress progressivism. It's anything but progressive. God, you know, what stands out to me often is not the objections, say, to what Strumia said. It's the rage and the yeah. vindictiveness. Where, where do these extreme emotions come from? I think in a sense, and I, I don't think it's hyperbolic to make this comparison, wokeism, if we use the colloquial term, is a form of secular religion, right? So in the same way that we often say, hey, you know, when you're going for an interview or a first date or, uh, you know, you're in polite company, two topics that you should avoid are politics and religion. Well, wh why do people use that norm of good behavior is because it inflames the passions, right? And if I'm going out on a first date and I tell my prospective date that I love candidate A and she doesn't, that could end up biting me in the in the behind because she might be so inflamed in her own political positions that we'll never get to find out whether we gel together. And so you're taught, you know, avoid these contentious topics. Well, I think to the extent that wokeism is a religion, right? It has some revealed truths that are impervious to empirical falsification. It is transphobic to say that a six foot seven man, 285 pounds, who yesterday called himself Bob, but now comes out as a transgender woman named Jenny, it is akin to being a Nazi to say that he has any, oh, I should say she has 
any hormonal, physical, morphological, biological, behavioral advantages when on Tuesday, since she's become a trans woman, she fights in an MMA uh, octagon against a biological woman who weighs 97 pounds. Are you some kind of transphobe bigot to think that six foot seven, 285 pound Jenny has any advantages, Dr. Saad? What kind of monster are you? So it is a revealed truth that the minute that I self-identify of another uh, biological I mean, gender, that's it. All differences cease to exist. Well, that's a religion, right? Because the average three-year-old pigeon knows that to be false. But we have to just nod our head and say, oh, no, 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 I'm with you. Right. So here's an example, by the way, of what I mentioned earlier, which is I am about as socially liberal as you can get. I am a strong supporter of transgender rights. I fight for transgender rights in the Middle East, which is a lot more dangerous to fight for those rights than it is at Wellesley College. But that doesn't mean that in the pursuit of defending the transgender rights that I murder basic truths. Men and women, biological male and women, are not built the same for all sorts of incredibly obvious evolutionary reasons. And so in the pursuit of transgender rights, I don't rape and murder truth. And so to answer your question in a very long-winded way, the reason why people respond so hysterically, because you are attacking their secular religion. You say that self-censorship is a lot worse than state censorship. Are we in a stage now where censorship really doesn't have to come with much force from the state because so many people have internalized these pathogens? 100%. That's, that's, and that's the exact reason why I make this point, because I, I would often get this kind of really just, you know, I don't want to be diplomatic, just this profoundly lobotomized imbecilic response from people. Why are you railing against social media companies, Dr. Saad? Don't you know they're private companies? They're not the government? I mean, the, the level of stupidity that that kind of rebuttal suggests is just, it's just baffling. These social media companies have more power over us than all dictators throughout human history. They decide <laughs> with one switch of a button whether Gatsad still exists in the world or not. One button, I could no longer exist, right? They decide what we see, when we see it, how we see it, which rank we see it in. So to have a complete violation of the free exchange of ideas is hardly something reserved for the government. And so this is precisely why I discuss in the book social media. This is precisely why I discuss self-censorship because once you sufficiently scare me into the consequences that might befall me if I say something that is out of line, I don't need to be afraid of the government. I'll be afraid that my company will fire me. I'll be afraid that my friends will unfriend me on Facebook. I'll be afraid that I won't be accepted, accepted or invited to the cool kids parties. So there's an endless number of ways by which you can keep me in check without requiring the government to censor me. As a matter of fact, many of the emails that I receive, and I have a section in my book where I talk about, you know, first person testimonies that I receive from, you know, students, from professors, from parents of students. Many times it's manifestations of self-censorship. You know, I was going to say something in class about why I think Donald Trump is is not such a bad guy, but I was so terrified that I would be kicked out of the class, I would fail, and therefore I self-censor. So it is completely incorrect to argue that void of the government censoring you, there is no problem. There is a problem. Now, you say that science should be an apolitical process 
But you hear progressives or leftists saying that any process of inquiry, selection, and evaluation has politics and partisanship embedded at the very base from the start. What's your response to that? The scientific method is the means by which we liberate ourselves from the shackles of our personal identity. When I study evolutionary psychology or I study the richness of human behavior, there is no Lebanese Jewish way of knowing. There's the scientific method, right? That's what puts us all on equal footing. Now, and this is why, by the way, in the book, I talk about the, the, the program to try to quote, indigenize at least Canadian universities. So the indigenization process is, comes in many forms, one of which is just, just profoundly anti-scientific, which basically says the scientific method and science in general is one of many ways of knowing. No, there's only one party in town. It's called the scientific method. Now, let's suppose I want to study some environmental issue within an ecosystem where, say, indigenous people have lived for thousands of years so that they have accumulated wisdom about the flora and fauna of that ecosystem. Well, of course, I'm going to consult with indigenous people because by definition, they have interacted with that environment for much longer than I have from the you know safety of my university in Montreal, right? But in adjudicating a particular environmental issue within that particular ecosystem, there is no indigenous way of knowing versus the scientific method way of knowing. There's only the scientific method way. So of course, humans are fallible. That's why the parasitic mind exists as a book. That's why scientists could be parasitized by these idea pathogens. But the scientific method is the way by which we hopefully are able to extricate those idea pathogens and those personal biases from our lenses. Now, that doesn't mean that some people will not succumb to their personal biases, but if they are good and honest scientists, they don't. I often hear my humanities colleagues talk about scientists and their, quote, pretensions to objectivity. But when I talk to scientists, they'll tell you, well, of course we have biases and and sometimes we lose our objectivity. That's why we have scientific method. That's what scientific method enables us to do. That means things like you got to share your evidence. You, You can't hold back on anything that you've used. That's why we talk about, you know, repeatability. These, these, our findings have to be replicated by others. All, All these methods are precisely a way of addressing what my humanities, my postmodern colleagues believe is something that explodes the whole enterprise. Maybe they just don't know very much about scientific method. Maybe that's the problem, God. (laughs) Well, I think, yeah, you're right. Look, I think that many of the postmodernists, I'm taking this in a slightly different direction, but it still speaks to the sort of anti-scientific ethos that many of these BS disciplines engage in. So I have a theory as to how postmodernism took root. It's a conjecture, but I think that there is solid evidence that I might be onto something. So if you try to read a physics paper, a scientific paper, or even worse, if you try to read a mathematics paper, by the first line, you're lost. Why? Because if you don't understand that language, you simply cannot navigate that particular paper. There is a complete language that is impenetrable to you unless you are a mathematician. Well, postmodernists came along, in my view, and said, you know, it's not fair that all of the cool kids hang out in biology and in physics and chemistry. We too are serious academics, so we are going to create our own impenetrable language. It'll be random gibberish BS, 
but we will be just as difficult to penetrate as those bastard haughty physicists. And so the holy trinity of bullshitters, uh, Jacques Lacan, Jacques Derrida, and Michel Foucault, three French guys, uh, really hit on something, right? If I can stand up in front of a crowd, engage in uh, verbal diarrhea, that really sounds <laughs> profound, but it's really full profundity. By the way, I, I talk about this. One of the ways that you engage in this kind of sleight of hand is when you start engaging in this kind of impenetrable language, the audience can do one of two things. It can either say, I'm not understanding this because I'm too dumb. The speaker is just too profound. Or the speaker is full of BS. Well, most people will attribute it internally. As a matter of fact, when my wife first found this out, she came to me and she said, oh my God, thank you, God, because when I used to study postmodernism in college, I thought it's because I was too stupid to understand it. Well, guess what? Another 10 million people thought the same thing. The reality is bridges are not built by postmodernism. Cancer is not solved by postmodernism. Nothing is achieved by postmodernism other than intellectual nihilism. You know, when postmodernism hit me when I was in graduate school in the 1980s, Postmodernism was offered as playful, ironic, irreverent. There was a lot of canny wit that supposedly went with it. You say it has now become a form of intellectual terrorism. These are very humorless people. Is that why you often opt for satire as a response to them? Oh yeah, thank you so much for this question. Great question. <laughs> Look, I truly believe that I'm in the I'm in the business of creating knowledge and then disseminating knowledge. So I have a toolbox by which I'm trying to persuade you of certain positions. So it's not as though I'm always professorial. Yeah, of course I am professorial and I can be just as austere and as serious as anybody, any professor could ever be. But I also realized that in the quick velocity, for example, of social media, there are other tools that I can use, especially if I think I'm very good at them, that I can try to convince you of certain positions. So I argue that satire is akin to the surgeon's scalpel cutting through warm butter, right? I mean, and that's exactly why satirists are some of the first people to be forbidden or outlawed by totalitarian regimes, because what scares totalitarian fascists more than anything is not guys with big muscles, but it's guys with big brains and more specifically guys with sharp satirical tongues, because they are the ones that could demonstrate the lunacy of your, you know, your positions. And that's why we try to get rid of satirists. They are forbidden. And so satire and sarcasm to me are incalculably valuable tools in demonstrating some of the laughable positions. Now, your subtitle, How Infectious ideas are killing common sense. Last question. Uh, sure. We know that postmodernism, identity politics, a lot of the pathogens, they have short-term victories. Do you ever worry that they may have a long-term victory? Yeah. I mean, I'd like to leave off the conversation with some optimism. <laughs> I'm not saying I want to be full optimistic and that I'm going to sell you some optimism, but I think otherwise. But let me kind of give you both possible scenarios. I think that these idea pathogens could end up causing a lot more damage. They will eventually be defeated, but it, the question is when will they be defeated and how much cost will we have to bear to defeat them? So if we're able to defeat them now peacefully, then it'll be much better than later. When I say later, I don't mean next Tuesday. I mean in 20 years, in 50 years, in 100 years. Because these idea pathogens have real world consequences. Trying to impose a socialist ethos on a species that doesn't believe in socialism 
is not a good idea. It's been tried in many, many countries and it has always failed. E.O. Wilson, the famous evolutionary biologist at Harvard in referring to socialism and communism said, great idea, wrong species. He said it, why? Because he is a entomologist. He studies social ants. Social ants are ideal for communism. Why? Because every single member of the colony is identical with the exception of one queen to, to whom we defer and grant all reproductive rights. So communism and socialism are great for some species and they're not that great for hierarchical species where there are individual differences between the organisms. So uh, we will defeat all these idea pathogens. We will win the battle of ideas. But the question is, do you want to win it peacefully by defeating these idiotic ideas, or do you want to wait 100 years when people wake up and say, I've had enough of this garbage? And this is why I implore people, maybe this is how we can end the conversation. I implore people in chapter eight, I have a call to actions chapter, where I say to people, don't think that you should subcontract your voice onto a few others who are willing to put everything on the line. Activate your inner honey badger, your voice matters. Be fierce in defending your principles. So. You may not have a podcast that is viewed by millions of people, but maybe your professor might say something that you re you reject. Challenge him or her politely. Maybe your friend says something on Facebook that is idiotic that you disagree with. Challenge them politely. In other words, it's a ideological trench warfare, and everybody has a voice to 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 contribute to that battle. So please roll up your sleeves and. Let your voice be heard. The book is The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. Professor, Professor Saad, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. Cheers. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.